0: Hello, Language Hackers! Benny here, welcoming you to episode number 26 of the Language Hacking Podcast. In this episode, Shannon and I have a chat with Jonathan Huggins, an English tutor, founder of the 30-Day Speaking Challenge and language enthusiast. Some of the things we talk about in this episode are why classroom learning works for Jonathan when it doesn't seem to for many other language learners, how to learn languages in the age of distraction, how to create sustainable language routines, and teaching your kids other languages. How are you finding the Language Hacking Podcast? Let us know by leaving a review. We really appreciate a recent review from Raymond, who wrote a review to let us know that the podcast is super useful and entertaining. Raymond also said, I don't miss a single one. If you're like Raymond and you don't miss a single episode, or if you enjoyed this episode, you can let us know what's working for you at languagehacking.com slash review. As always, we really love hearing from you and we read every review. The links and resources mentioned in this episode can be found at languagehacking.com slash 26. Now, on to our interview with Jonathan.
1: Welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast from Fluent in Three Months.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast. I'm joined with my co-host, as always, Shannon. Hello,
1: everyone
0: and today we are going to be talking to Jonathan. How's it going? Great. Great to talk to you with Benny and Shannon. How are you guys doing? Very good. So I'd love to hear just your own um, introduction to your story of how you got into languages.
2: So I would say I started with Spanish all the way back in high school. Uh, That was my first uh, experience there. And um, I think I started loving it immediately uh, after about two years, I took on French at the same time. So I was doing, um, like Spanish three, French one, and then that, uh, the Spanish helped accelerate things. So, uh, in my last year, uh, the teachers said, Hey, why don't you switch to French three, skip French two. And I was in Spanish four AP, the like advanced placement one that gets you college credit if you get a test and then, um, I really caught the language bug by then. So I started taking a conversational German class at the community college in the evenings. Um, I was also um, asking some help from one of my teachers at the high school who knew Latin. So I just got curious a little bit there, just a little dabbling in Latin. Um, and by the end of high school, my, my teachers uh, selected me for like a... Uh, an award for excellence in foreign language. They said I was like the only one from my high school, the only one from my district. And uh, there was a special kind of all district uh, event where they invited people. So it was like really cool to be picking up Spanish, French, German, and then after high school, then I picked up Italian and and just ransacking the local library for Russian, Arabic, uh, Chinese, just any anything I could dabble in. Um, I just started experimenting wherever I could get my hands on stuff. Or if I met foreign exchange students, um, I hired a, a Japanese uh, student to like, hey, can you just tutor me in your native language and explain these things? They weren't teachers. So I had a Figure some of that stuff out just by interacting with with, um, with them as a native speaker and trying to kind of use self-study approaches for teasing out uh, any insights I could get from them. So, and that was, yeah, that was like 20, 25 years ago.
1: I love how your story is a little bit different from a lot of the other polyglots out there in that a lot of us were really bad at languages in school or it wasn't our thing or the method didn't necessarily work for us, but it seems as though it did work really well for you and it was something that you continued to do for a while with a lot of different languages. So I'd love if you could maybe go a little bit more into depth about what in particular the classroom environment did for you as a language learner.
2: Um, Yeah, so yeah, I I, I definitely commiserate with a lot of the, like, I I just couldn't get it. Or like the the classroom can be really just boring. Or in some cases it can, there's just a disconnect between the content uh, that's being studied. I, I remember in like the French class, like I don't care about women's clothing and accessories, but I had to have, I had, I was going to take a test on that stuff. So I didn't want to fail the test on women's clothing. I had to learn all the vocabulary, even though I wasn't going to use it myself, but um, I would say for my, my dad is also a bit of a language dabbler. So he had like the whole Pimsleur catalog and, uh, or, or it felt like he had the whole thing, but so I would steal his cassette tapes and, um, sounds a bit crazy. And I think it was, but I had access cause I was, uh, had musical training as well and played a couple instruments. So I had a musical studio in my bedroom, so I would have cassette players Um, And I would play the Spanish Pimsleur tape, the French Pimsleur tape, the German Pimsleur tape, the Italian Pimsleur tape. I'd have like four or five of these prompts going on simultaneously um, and just responding them back and forth and trying to work on kind of code switching or switching back and forth just to bombard myself. And additionally to that um, for the French, Uh, There was uh, the whole French in Action uh, video series. I copied that onto my own cassettes, uh, video cassettes, so I would get like six hours of like the the first semesters worth of content and then I would just watch those every afternoon after school. I wouldn't bother watching TV or stuff. I would just kind of absorb all of that as much as I could, uh, even let it going while I was sleeping. Um, uh, I, I scared my French professor at the university by the time I had consumed and memorized and gone through that series over and over again, uh, because I'd memorized all the dialogues. Um, I knew, I knew all the episodes back and forth. So, uh, the students just like the other students in my French class just looked at me kind of bug eyed of like, just discovering this stuff. And I had it memorized. I knew all the professor's explanations. I could recite lines of dialogue. So I had just completely internalized uh, the French material. I would say that was a biggest step forward for, for the French was supplementing it with that series because it was just all immersion. It was just constantly listening only in French, nothing translated in a mix of these Pindler's tapes for the kind of that active output uh, with the practice element. And then in the classroom, just it was the traditional stuff of the teachers like, Hey, we're going to learn this. We're going to do this exercise. And um, I would go along with it, take the tests. And um, I got a bit bored though. I think the uh, I, I could absorb the stuff rather quickly. So I didn't push myself too much to do the homework assignments. And I think that that annoyed the teachers as well, because they couldn't give me too much too many points on like homework grading because they would see like i'd get great scores on the tests but wouldn't do any of the homework because i got bored so um so that was a challenge as well to stay stay connected to the curriculum that was in the classroom um, i was starting to supplement it for my own curiosity early on
0: so like shannon said the story that we hear from many people has been uh, generally they get this burst uh, in their adult years to get into languages and because it seems like you're genuinely like naturally interested in languages. And um, I, I want to know like, where does this passion come from and what are your thoughts on people being uh, potentially naturally gifted at languages versus a skill that they can learn?
2: The adult learning, I think it's also a mix of uh, there's the. Lots of things to juggle at the same time, like family, uh, studies, work, uh, just lots of stuff going on in the background. And so being able to just fully immerse or or kind of uh, surrender yourself to the language learning process. I think younger students can do that, Uh, like high school students might or early high school students might not have a job to worry about, certainly not a family, um, not having to really pay for the rent. So you can just kind of dive into that material. And I think nowadays, it's it's even easier with the internet connections and so many resources. But I would say I do value what I was doing back then, 25 years ago, where I had limited access to materials. So I was only using French in action. I just fully immersed myself in that process. Whereas I think a lot of, a lot of, a lot of people today, it's just too much noise, too many resources, too many... Too many options and trying to cut through the noise and try to figure out a plan. So there's maybe a shallow level um, across multiple resources, and maybe not enough of like sticking to one resource, uh, staying at it for long enough to really see the the, the longer term benefits. Uh, it's it's very easy right now in today's world to get distracted by so many notifications, distractions, and things. It's it's, it's much more challenging today uh, than I feel it was 25 years ago with like, cassettes and one video series and, and, and one textbook in the classroom and just work with that and trust the system.
1: Based on what you just said and a couple of things that I know about you, the fact that you're a dad and you're also an English teacher, I'm sure that in working with English learners especially, because I feel like this is a predominantly... English learner thing is that now with all of the access to materials and online and games and movies and globalization and things, there's just a lot more, especially in English, available in other places. And I know with my kids, it's really easy for them to, you know, start playing a video game and they start learning English playing Minecraft and all of that sort of thing. So as far as resources and as far as the stuff being available, what have you noticed with your students and the impact that this has had?
2: It's the I, I might go into like my, my, my first lesson, especially students who are preparing for the TOEFL, the test of English as a foreign language. So they can get accepted uh, into like a, a university in the States or other countries. And uh, I might give them a lot of recommendations uh, and say, OK, take advantage of the Internet. Um, there's YouTube channels. There's these resources. But at the same time, there's a lot of uh, resources about can we trust this? Is it up to date? Is this going to be effective? So they do come to me wanting that guidance. They do want that action plan. So telling people that there's a whole buffet and figure it out on your own sometimes gets a bit overwhelming. Um, For, for my own kids, uh, basically YouTube and, and Netflix are their babysitters sometimes. So they're, they're going in and specifically selecting that they want the stuff in Spanish um, that's their dominant language since we live in Mexico. Um, and, and when we have family movie night, it's a debate because I want to watch some of the stuff in English. They want to watch it in Spanish. Uh, their mother wants to watch it in French. So it's like, we, we, we have to kind of play uh rock paper scissors to see which language we're going to watch the, the movie. in. uh, half the time I end up having to watch stuff dubbed in Spanish, um, uh, which isn't a problem, but, uh, I would like to encourage them to listen in English. But um, there, yeah, there's so much content out there uh, and deciding which language to use it in or uh, sticking through with the process gets gets a little bit trickier.
0: So uh, you, you had this background that you were passionate about languages, but ultimately you ended up needing uh, to use these languages. Like you say, you currently live in Mexico, so obviously you're going to have to use Spanish a lot. But I believe you studied music at uh, La Sorbonne in Paris. Mm-hmm. And that, that would have obviously involved um, using quite a lot of French. And how was that adjustment to using French, like especially in a university kind of situation? Were you nervous or excited? And how did you make that adjustment? It, it was a...
2: I, I went from being
0: a... For, for the music
2: side and for the language side, I went from being like a big fish in a small pond at my university uh, where I was in California to being a very tiny, minuscule little sardine um, at a European university and just among all these really talented musicians. So I got a huge case of uh, kind of imposter syndrome. I'm like, what am I doing here? Um, the first year I was just focused on French studies. I was doing French, uh, French literature, uh, Lettre Moderne. I completely failed that that first year because I just didn't know how to write a French essay. Uh, the American style essays just did not prepare me for the commentaire um, composé, or the dissertation. Uh, like I just didn't have any of that experience and my teachers were just giving me these brutal like nine out of 20 scores and my friends would say like, hey, that's pretty good. And I was like, I failed. And they would say, no, 10 is decent. and uh, by the end of the year, I, I decided to go back to music and I did uh, musicology, uh, musicology, and all of those courses were in French. So I no longer had to compete on French like a native speaker and writing essays like a native speaker. Now I could just be studying music and having so-so essays because the emphasis was on my uh, musical analysis or my understanding of like history and sociology and, and composition techniques and that, that was a focus, not how well I could write an essay. So um, my teachers in the music department, which were much more supportive than my uh, French literature uh, teachers, it was still the same university, but it was just a very different experience.
1: And how do you think all of these different experiences that you had in learning languages in school and learning in a different language had on your teaching today?
2: Oh, it, it really made me much more compassionate, much more empathetic with with the students like i have been living abroad for almost uh 18 years now um and i know that experience of learning in a foreign language trying to uh assimilate to the local culture uh using the language as a language of communication with the teachers having to get really good at the homework assignments and things so i i all of the students i work with for like the TOEFL prep i i see myself 18 years ago, uh, 20 years ago. And and I, I can say, Oh, this is the advice I wish that somebody had told me not only about the exam pre- process or studying in a foreign country or um, who to make friends with once you move there. Uh, just like a lot of those steps, I can, I can kind of guide students in a um, uh, more than just here's English, here's grammar, here's pronunciation, here's vocabulary. I can, Uh, Go a lot further than just the prep process. I um, I do follow up on kind of the once they get the scores, then we move on to the motivation letter or the statement of purpose, and and then I get emails months later, like, "Hey, I got accepted that university. Um, I've been studying here. Like, thank you so much." So it's really it's very gratifying to to be able to go through that whole process, see somebody who's motivated to learn somewhere abroad, uh, prepare for the exam, realize there's a story after the exam, and then they actually do get into these places. So um, I see myself uh, 18 years ago, and and I love being able to kind of hand the keys to let people unlock that stuff for their own journeys and their own uh, kind of life stories that are about to take place if they get those scores and get, get a chance to travel.
0: And one thing that you've uh, done is you uh, took the precursor to the Fluent Three Months Challenge, the Add One Challenge, and you participated in that, mm-hmm. and you actually got some inspiration and created your own 30-day speaking challenge along the lines of, like you're saying, you've learned how to give the keys to other people and encourage them to learn language. So how uh, I would lo- lo- like to hear your um, explanation of how that kind of evolved and what that is today, this uh, 30-day speaking challenge.
2: In, even beyond before that, I think uh, there's another challenge called language heroes, uh, which uh, you I think you are familiar with. Uh, Evgenia Kasheva, and so a, fr- a, a Russian friend of mine told me she was joining that one back in the summer of like 2015. And then after that, went through an iteration of like 12 weeks. They said they were opening it up to. Uh, foreigners. So they. So I was learning Russian at the time, and they just. I got welcomed by hundreds of Russian speakers wanting to enthusiastically learn these other languages. I practiced as much as I could. And then um, they voted me king uh, by the end of the 12 weeks. Um, I was at a very high kind of, wow, language learning, language challenges, online communities. This is really cool. Uh, and then Afghania had a cool idea at the start of... January, which was to apply this thing called Speak in a Week. uh, For for one week, we were going to do this challenge, and uh, this really cool polyglot, Benny, was going to kind of welcome us and guide us through that process. So I I took on Turkish for a week. I fell in love with the idea of Speak in a Week, and I was like, I'm going to do this for 52 weeks this year. And I told everybody this crazy idea I was going to dabble in Turkish, Ukrainian, Indonesian, Swahili. Uh, Swedish, uh, Finnish. And I, j- I just started doing like once a week doing that process until I came across uh, Brian Kwong. I inter- interviewed him. He told me more about the behind the scenes of how the Ad One Challenge was working. He invited me to join it. And he said, stop dabbling, just focus on one language, do Russian for the next three months. And I said, okay, fine. Um, and I I just surrendered myself to Russian for for the 90 days. And I really liked the idea of the day zero, day 30, day 60, day 90 recording. By the end of the first week, I said, um, I'm going to make this a daily, a, a daily action. So I just turned it into a, a playlist. Uh, every night I would record myself speaking in Russian for about five, 10 minutes. I managed to keep that up for like a 90, 100 day streak, even beyond the 90 days. My day ninety conversation ended up being like an hour and a half, all in Russian. I, I, I surprised myself by how long I was able to do that. And but then I crashed really hard because I was also doing like I had A one fifteen for Russian, A one sixteen for Greek. I couldn't really keep up both of them simultaneously. And then I was on vacation visiting my family, and then my online teaching really took off, and I had these. 11 hour, 12 hour teaching days. And I just crashed. I couldn't keep up. It was an unsustainable routine. And um, I struggled for a long time after that for several months. And then I came up on this one year anniversary of joining that one challenge. And on a a whim, I had a friend who said he was learning Russian at the time. And I just challenged him like, hey, do you want to just record ourselves for on a daily basis for 30 days? And he said, yes. And then I just went into a couple of these Facebook groups and said, Hey, I'm, I'm doing this crazy thing for the next 30 days. Anybody want to join us? And, uh, 40 months later, we're, we're still at it. Um, we haven't stopped.
1: You just mentioned something that I think is really important and it's about sustainability in your learning and the, Ability to create a routine that you can stick to and sustain for the long term. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of language learners struggle with because they get excited about the language and they want to do all the things and they end up doing too much. And like you said, crashing and burning. So what would your advice be to someone about one, creating a sustainable routine and what that might look like? And then two, uh, how to avoid the crash and burn or what to do if you are facing it?
2: The two, two books that I would recommend, uh, one uh, by Charles Duhigg, the power of habit, that really helped me figure out some some uh, uh, ways to work on good habits and break some bad ones. And uh, and and currently, I'm working on reading Atomic Habits by uh, James Clear. That's that one is heavily about systems and that sustainability. And that one is is helping find the sweet spot uh, where. It's not too intensive and I'm not gonna burn out so much. So uh currently what is working thanks to those two books and, and those two systems is I keep the system as simple as possible. So now each day I'm doing one video recording, just let the let the video go and I will record myself, uh get the ball rolling in English, start brainstorming what I'm gonna talk about, then switch to. Spanish, French, German, Italian, Russian, let it go, I don't know, maybe 20 minutes or 30 minutes, just switch, one click, um, start, stop, change the name, upload it to YouTube and try to get as few steps um, as possible so I don't get in my way, I don't overcomplicate it with separate recordings, separate names, separate tags, I just try to keep it as, as, as simple as possible and that now seems to be uh, sustainable. Like I I can see myself just not overthinking just starting to speak and then stop. Um, so start simple, keep it simple. Don't overcommit. Um, not the, I'm going to do two hours a day, but maybe start with, I can do five and then five becomes 10. Uh, and what I really liked in the add one challenge and, and the fluent three months challenge is the, uh, kind of daily kind of yay. And maybe commit to something a minimal amount of time of like I can commit to 30 minutes. And um, that I really liked better than the language heroes, which was a, a spreadsheet and we would kind of track our time. And I felt like I could cheat because I would say I, I was going to commit to 30 minutes, but today I did 15. So maybe tomorrow I'll do 45 and hopefully that will balance itself out. And when I was in the Fluent three months uh, challenge, it was like, did you do it or not? Did you do the 30 minutes or not? And I felt really embarrassed to have to click the nay, uh, button. And I was like, okay, I, I said, I promised myself I, I was going to commit to 30 minutes. Okay, do the 30 minutes. So it, it was a lesson in sticking to the promises you make to yourself and not like, oh, I'm going to do two hours. and Then I only did half hour and then feel embarrassed or feel frustrated because that, that leads to interrupting a streak. That leads to um, kind of two days of interrupting a streak. And, and then it becomes uh, frustration, embarrassment, uh, and then, okay, I'll just give up.
0: So as well as um, daily check-ins like we have in the challenge, and uh, like you said, you appreciated having uh, specific like day zero, day 30 goals that you would be aiming for, and obviously not overcommitting. What do you recommend for beginners? Like what are the resources? What are the uh, specific things that they should be doing as they're in their first couple of months of getting to learn a language? Like what are the what's the meat of the actions that they take
2: so if if somebody is starting a, like a brand new language and, up, and applying the 90-day uh, process to or the three-month process to a brand new language r- very early on i think you need to get in touch with a language teacher who can assess i mean even if it's a beginner they can assess kind of your learning background your learning needs your goals and set out a, uh, an action plan, maybe not for three months, but at least for the next week, next two weeks or the that first month. So you don't overcommit or, or get lost in the forest, uh, start with something manageable for one week. Um, beyond that, reach out to experienced learners, people who are at the intermediate level, the more advanced level, uh, see what worked for them kind of, uh, what, what was really good, useful vocabulary uh, to work on, to focus on first, uh, because there's so much out there, so much clutter. So we can get, um, we can get a little overwhelmed with too much, but starting with a, maybe a one week process and, and I think the um, keeping track of what you're doing each day. Uh, what worked? What didn't in that routine? How much time did you spend on it? Uh, self-assess what worked, what didn't. Do a little bit more of what worked. Trim, trim back what didn't, and keep it daily. keep Keep, keep the focus on daily. Um, I think waiting till the end of the weekend uh, it's not as as effective. Um, similar to like going to a gym, like once a week is not as effective as a little a little bit each day, um, bite size kind of uh, tasks. Mm-hmm
1: we had spoken a bit ago about how your father was really into languages and you're really into languages and now you're raising your kids to speak multiple languages. So it's really interesting how that's been so multi-generational for your family. Do you feel that there's anything specific that maybe your father did to encourage you or was it just the accessibility? Like if someone wanted to encourage their children to speak another language or share that enthusiasm, like what, sort of environment might they be able to set up to make that easier?
2: Oh, yeah, that's an excellent question. I think the, having those resources there, having that, having that library, having those bookshelves, just, I could go in and just, and, and be encouraged to do that. I didn't feel like I was stealing his stuff. He was like, no, go, go take it, borrow it. And we would have um, cassettes. And I think I've heard in, uh, you listening like Pimsler cassettes in your car. And so that kind of stuff is very stimulating. I went on a a road trip uh, with my dad, and and we had one of those like Russian Pimsler tapes in the car, and um, he didn't realize how much I had learned. He thought I had was still in the kind of hello, how are you, and I was responding to some stuff. So, so the encouragement, just doing some of the stuff together for my son. I've tried not to push him so much to like have to respond to me in English. I wish I had done that, but. My daughter, she's younger than him and she will go out of the way to respond to me in English. So I don't want to push too much um, because I I recognize there might be a pushback and I don't want to have that disconnect, Um, but I will encourage them. I I only speak to them in English, so I do get them to at least hear me in English. And I I also recognize that when I ask or questions, it forces them to respond uh, back in English. When I ask like, hey, what do you want to eat? they're going to respond to me in Spanish. But if I say, do you want you know, this or that, they have to repeat what I just said. Um, it, in, in some cases with my dad, I, uh, there were some cases where we would be traveling and he said, Oh, there's some French people go talk to them in French. And I would feel a bit embarrassed of a, a bit shy. Like I wouldn't go up to random Americans speaking English and go, they, they speak English. They're Americans. I'm like, yeah, so am I. I don't necessarily have that instant connect to just kind of go up and just, hi, I'm some random stranger spe- learning your language. I felt a bit like I was eavesdropping and they were having a family vacation or something. And I, I just didn't want to, I felt a bit embarrassed there. I mean, I, I, I'm happy that he was very proud that I was learning these languages and that he would tell other people like, oh, my son speaks all these languages. But, but I would be a little bit more kind of, uh, I would be wanting to be a little more shy, modest and not like, yes, I'm hello. I'm nice to meet you. Like, if I were in their country, maybe I would do that, but that, that was a little tricky sometimes, but just the, the, the encouragement, the resources, um, making it something you could share as uh, as a activity with the parents and the kids. Um, now we've got a lot of games. We've got a lot of board games in the house. So we, we play some of those board games in the different languages. We've got Lord of the Rings in French. So the kids want to read the, the cards in French. They, they, they're, grabbing those chance cards before the other one can so they can read it in French. Um, so they're really, they, they want to get involved in those games. So board games, that's a good way to have a family fun and, um, practice the language. Mm-hmm.
0: I think, uh, what, uh, the way your father reacted to seeing, you know, I'll oh, go speak to those French people. It's, um, it's, it's interesting because it, it kind of overlaps with, an impression. I think a lot of people have with successful language learners, of uh, expectations for what they think they should be in terms of personality style and such. And um, I'm I'm the same, like I I would feel intimidated if somebody else told me, go speak in, in whatever language to those random people. So what other stereotypes have you found or misconceptions about successful language learners, given that you've been in it for such a long time, you've helped so many people learn languages, your children are learning languages, for someone who's completely new to language learning and has this idea that a polyglot is someone who just will walk up to random st- strangers and blurt out in languages, what other misconceptions do you think people tend to have about successful language learners?
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a cool one. Um, perfectionism. I think like we we can't we can't do it until it's perfect. Uh, I think I it's taken me a while to just really fully embrace failure and uh, the mistakes and um yeah, the mistakes like I, I, I'm not allowed to speak this until I get it perfect and I think it's the 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 making this makes part that creates that practice element. Um, I think the neglecting that part I think filling up too much on the reading listening um, writing before the speaking part. Uh, another misconceptions here for. Uh, yeah, just being extroverts, uh, and, and sometimes the language learning can be a more, um, personal experience, something you do kind of as a, as a a mental exercise, as a hobby kind of, uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be friendly with everyone. I, I, it, it, it can be energy consuming sometimes in, in those, uh, those encounters. Um, That that it comes as a natural gift. I think that, I think it's just hard work. Uh, I think there's a quote from Einstein about like, it's, it's not that I'm just better at this. It's just like I stick around with these problems much longer. So I think the um, everybody can learn a language. And I think certainly, certainly your approach for the um, uh, language hacking and, and, and speak from day one, I think it really does embrace the, that anybody can do this, Uh, just have to get started. Uh, There isn't a secret genetic code or something. I think everybody can learn their their first language. I think with the right techniques or the right approach, uh, they can kind of uh, start working towards another one. It doesn't have to be some club membership or something.
1: That's really interesting that you brought that up because as a musician, I think that that kind of assumption exists in music as well that people are naturally inclined to do music whereas because they just see this person on stage performing their instrument or singing they don't see all of the hours of practice that go in all of the hours of rehearsal that go in all of like the head slamming frustration moments mistakes all of those things that happens in the background and the same is true for language learning. So, uh, given that those two kind of have that bit of overlap and as a musician, having studied it all the way through university, have you noticed any other parallels in the two? Well,
2: yeah, definitely. And I, I, I agree with a lot of stuff you said, uh, when the two of you were talking about your musical background in a, in a previous, uh, podcast episode, the, um, the work that goes in for the, the, the daily training and, 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 and especially what you say, like the mouth muscles and uh, that needs training that needs muscle memory to, to work on that stuff. It's not like, it's just not, not exactly a cognitive process that like, I, I think I can speak this language. There also has to be the practice element in there. Um, Certainly the, the hours that go in, um, I think the, I think there's a quote from, I think the violinist, the Heifetz about if I don't, if I don't practice for a day, I notice it. If I don't practice for two days, the critics notice it. If I don't practice for like three days, the audience knows it. So, it speak, practice speaking. It really does need that daily daily practice. Uh, otherwise, we get kind of rusty rather quickly. And uh, I, I I think that's doing doing this on your own. It doesn't just have to be the musician playing and, and jamming with with other people. I think a lot of language learners think. The only practice opportunity is in a conversation or with a teacher. And the, the big thing that I learned in, in, in the Fluent Three Month Challenge was like, I could practice by myself. I could record myself uh, each day and that would still constitute as, as practice. And that's something definitely that musicians would do that they want to get good at that piece of music. You, you practice that alone and then you perform it. Uh, you, you rehearse it, perform it with other people. So I think language learners definitely need that practice uh individual practice reviewing some of the grammar adding some new vocabulary doing some uh pronunciation exercises and then and then rehearsal performance might be with um with other learners or other native speakers and that might not actually be a practice mode that might be a performance mode um where like you don't want to uh make your Speaking partner, wait while you're looking for Google on what's that keyword or what's that translation you, you want to perform, you want to uh, have that conversation uh, and not keep them waiting.
0: And uh, switching gears a little bit, something you said earlier was that, uh, which I find so interesting uh, because I've, I've heard different perspective, perspectives on it, that nowadays we have so many resources that it's definitely overwhelming, but it makes it, it means that you can get specific resources for specific things and one thing that I do see that you're very active in that you can be now that you would not have been able to be 20 years ago is you have a very lively Instagram account and there's a very active language learning community within Instagram. So what kind of benefits do you see of using that kind of social media to express your language learning and to see other people's?
2: The the, the social element online is definitely a, a game changer for Sharing work, finding finding a community, finding people who can even kind of outsource feedback for you. The, v- the videos that that can be a bit of a kind of getting out of one shell. So that that can be beneficial for the language learning process. But the connection, I think, that's a huge uh, possibility. Where if if I did go back 25 years and realize, like, okay, I'm just here in. at at home. How how do I know? Am I, am I doing this right? How can I get some feedback? I, I did work a little bit at the beginning with ICQ um, and, and started uh, interacting with people online, but it was all text. There there was no real audio at the time. Uh, That did help with actual conversation, actual vocabulary. But nowadays with the Instagram, you, you can get those commit to maybe a 60 second audio recording. It doesn't have to be something too long, like on a YouTube channel. It could just be something, bite size, um, and with the right hashtags, uh, other people who you have never met before, they could, um, give you feedback. They could, um, uh, give you some corrections. They could give you some enthusiasm. Um, I would say the community is very supportive. It isn't, it isn't all kind of negativity or, or critiques or you're not doing it right. I think there's a lot more encouragement. Um, it's, it's a very motive, motivating, uh, environment, a very nurturing one.
1: One of the things that we like to on a similar note, since you're talking about social media and tools that are available to us today, what is your impression of what language hacking is? We like to ask everyone who comes on the show since it is a language hacking podcast.
2: I love language hacking. I I one of the one of the reasons why I started a Facebook group like five years ago actually, was I was getting so many direct messages from people wanting to like communicate and, and practice. And I said, I want to get all of you together in one place. And I'd like to do some kind of a hackathon. Um, it never really took off. It was such a difficult concept to explain to people like, okay, I'm going to create this spreadsheet. All of you come in here. Let's, let's do this for one hour. We're going to translate all these things. I also do some, some, some coding. I, I can do some like HTML, JavaScript and stuff and create some web apps. And I wanted to just like, hey, okay, let's get all this vocabulary here, let's get all the sentences, sample sentences, let's get some recordings, um, and I will kind of hack together some things where it's crowdsourced, uh, and we can put together our own resources. And um, people just didn't quite catch that, they didn't quite commit to it. Um, but for, for my own learning, I, I love that kind of stuff of what are the essential 100 words, or what are the most frequent things that I need, and cherry pick, what's gonna help me communicate. Um I, I also love the approach of kind of learning lots of filler words first. Um I was able to bluff a lot of native speakers into thinking I had lived somewhere where I'd never set foot before because I could throw in um Also or Acht or uh Jagenau um, in German and it's like, oh when did you live in Germany? I was like never. Um so that those kind of little tricks can kind of convince a native speaker to just let down their guard and, and kind of speak with you in a more natural way. I, I love some of those little tricks. And, um, I've got all the, uh, the four, uh, books for German, French, Spanish, Italian. Um, I should have gotten those signed, uh, <laughs> at Langfest, but, um, but yeah, I love that approach. I think it's really cool for uh, opening the opening the uh, under the hood of the car and figuring out how the language works and and trying to trying to get started as as quickly as possible and not kind of figure out the whole thing perfectly before speaking. I think enough enough is a is uh, enough can go a long ways. I think the uh, with with teaching, I tell students like phrasal verbs, like you, you can just work with like ten base verbs and ten particles, and you can get like a hundred. Uh, you can easily get like a hundred phrasal verbs, so I like that kind of systematic. Like you can combine a few things that are are functional, and you can get a lot of uh, a lot of use out of that. Um, you don't have to know thousands of words. You could get the essential 100, 200 and, and you, yeah, you don't have to have a whole. Sentence. You could do the Tarzan caveman speak uh, and, and not in a bad way, not in an embarrassing way, but just in a functional way that gets the point across and, and people understand what you're trying to communicate.
0: Yeah, I really like that understanding and language hacking. OK, well, we'll definitely be making sure to link to all of your stuff in the show notes. So uh, for people who are curious, what projects are you working on and where can they find you? So
2: I have the 30 day speaking challenge on Huggins International dot com um and on instagram i'm at english uh, dot with dot jonathan uh those are two places where i spend a lot more time
1: excellent well as benny said we'll be sure to include that in the show notes and um along with all your other social media links because i know you're active on youtube and everything too so we want to make sure to include that so people know where to find you uh thank you so much for joining us today
2: oh thank you it was a pleasure and yeah can't wait to Share this with everybody.
0: Yeah, and until the next one, happy language learning.
1: Happy language learning.
0: In each episode, Shannon and I like to share a key takeaway you can take action on and start doing right away to make instant changes to your language learning. And in this interview, Jonathan shared how enough can go a long way. Over the years of learning, he's figured out how just a few functional words and phrases in a new language can help him communicate. You can get a lot of use out of just a couple of hundred words, connectors or key phrases. Would you like to know what these phrases are? When you join the Fluent in 3 Months Challenge, we have a mini course built in called Conversation Builder. And as part of it, you learn how to create scripts with these few keywords and phrases that take you a really long way can find out more at languagehacking.com challenge. We hope you enjoyed this interview. We definitely found our chat with Jonathan interesting, so thank you for listening. And if you found this interview helpful, don't forget to leave us a review at languagehacking.com review. Until next time, happy language learning.
1: We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you found this episode valuable and want to help us out, please leave a review at languagehacking.com forward slash review. The Language Hacking Podcast is presented by Benny Lewis and Shannon Kennedy and produced by David Sobel. With special thanks to the Fluent in Three Months team. Theme music was written and performed by Shannon Kennedy. Find the show notes at languagehacking.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and happy language learning.